0: This week on the Tech On Tap podcast, we bring all the cloudy, DevOpsy buzzwords with NetApp's Jonathan Rippey and Red Hat's Glenn Decazer. Well, welcome to the Tech On Tap podcast with Justin Parisi. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. NetApp! I love
1: this company. Zipalk!
0: I love NetApp because it's so funny. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. My name is Justin Parisi. I'm here in the studio, and with me today, Jonathan Rippey. Hi, hi. How you doing? Great. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm talking really fast because we have a special guest that has to get out of here at three o'clock. Oh, we go. We should go fast then. You yes, should sure. totally go fast. Yeah, we have an hour. We don't have to go that fast. Okay. Um, so, uh, Jonathan, uh, what do you do here at NetApp, and how do I reach you?
2: Um, I am a pro- programmer on our Trident team, working within the container ecosystem with Docker and Kubernetes. Um, I'm on Twitter at JK Rippy and I'm on the pub and yeah. And the slacks. And the slacks. Yeah.
0: Slacking. Yep. Cool. All of the above. Awesome. Also uh with us today on the phone from uh I don't know if it's sunny or rainy there, but New York. <laughs> Pouring. <laughs> Glenn Decazer, uh also of the NetApp A team. So Glenn, what do you do and how do we reach you?
1: I am the field CTO at Ready, a uh, national systems integrator, and uh, you can reach me at gdeckhazer on Twitter. So, what does a field CTO do, Glenn? Um, it's kind of the pollinator between like marketing, sales, engineering, you know, all that kind of stuff, and talking. You know, also like an SE. But my job, I'd say, my job is to know everything, and I go to bed every day a failure. So. <laughs>
0: Perfect. That's why you're here on the podcast. We're full of failure. Um, So today, we're going to talk about uh, Cloud, uh, the data fabric, as well as Cloud Volumes ONTAP, and how you're deploying it and selling it into your customer environments. Uh, We'll also cover DevOps and containers, as well as Trident, because that's why Rippy's here. Otherwise, he'd be useless. Um, Thanks. No no, no problem, (laughs) always. Uh, So Glenn, uh, tell us about the data fabric and how you are implementing it as it becomes more and more of a reality in the newest ONTAP versions.
1: Well, it's interesting because we're seeing a lot of clients that are trying lots of different ways to get up in the cloud. Everyone's trying to do it in different ways, uh, and uh, we're seeing the traditional "quote unquote" lift and shifts, uh, which make everybody cringe, uh, because we all know that you know if you're doing things in the cloud the way you were doing it on prem, chances are it will be a suboptimal outcome. Let's just put it that way. Uh, but we see a lot of that, and since you can run on tap in the cloud, and you can try to do the stuff there the way you were doing it on-prem and it can be done at you know maybe a high cost maybe not the same performance but um, you know it, we all kind of know that if you're doing it that way it's, it's probably not not going to work out in the long run and you may choose to go back on-prem and we've had a, customer, a couple of, uh, of unnamed clients that have, that have gone through that pain uh, not CVO clients just general you know cloud boomerangs but um, and uh, so you get clients that are trying to use infrastructure as a service correctly in the most efficient way by you know containerizing our applications uh, and then you got all the orchestration on kubernetes and all that kind of stuff uh, and interestingly enough i've got uh, some clients that have looked at the landscape and taken some experiences from other people they talked to and they said you know what what we can't put in sas uh, we are going to skip infrastructure as a service and we're actually going to go right to serverless we're going to refactor our apps and make a big effort to, to hit take the applications that we've built on-prem over all these years that that do all these functions, whatever it is, their industry that that they've done. And they're gonna take these things and they're gonna refactor them into Lambda or Google Cloud Functions or Azure Functions, anything like that. So, uh, and that's an interesting concept because a lot of people talking about Kubernetes and how it's gonna meld into the background and no one's gonna see it in the future. And that's kind of the first evidence of that, right? Because what is serverless running on, right? There's containers there, there's orchestration there. You just don't see it because you're just running your functions. So it's an interesting dynamic. It's happening a lot faster than I thought it would, uh, and I think you're going to start seeing that even as people go and do it on prem with things like OpenFAS and things like that. So it's an interesting dynamic. Um, however, it, it, it's an interesting challenge for the data fabric because you still have the need to have to work on the data sets that you had on prem in, in, in these new uh, paradigms. And so, what do you do? I mean, the problem with serverless is that since you don't own the server, you don't even own the container. Uh, you can't do things like port binding, which is required for NFS mounts and SMB. That's a challenge because on tap, although now in 9.7, we have S3 protocol, you can't do that on top of existing NFS and SMB volumes, right? So how do we get to that data? And that is the challenge that we've been seeing as, as customers are going into that serverless environment and want to act on data that's being brought up into the data fabric. How do we do that, right? You know, obviously one way is to use cloud sync, getting up into storage grid, and, and work it up that way. But what if you're not doing everything with object, right? You want to mix, you want to do it the way you know and maintain on tap. So I've been working on some stuff to, to help my clients do that.
0: So, so you mentioned that some of the challenges people have with uh, going from on-prem to cloud is they can't do things the way they used to be able to do things. And I'm, I'm hearing that, you know, things like NFS binding and, and protocol, stuff like that is one of those things. What are some of the other... Problems that people see when they go from on-prem to cloud. What are some of the challenges that they didn't anticipate?
1: Well, I'll tell you a lot of the um, a lot of these companies that are moving as fast as they possibly can to get to the cloud. And and when you're talking to all the people uh, and, and you hear all the buzzwords around Kubernetes and all the great stuff that's going on in containerization, that's all kind of focused on the application, right? On the actual executable code that's being developed. Um, and and DevOps is really all about you know releasing quality code as fast as possible making life easier for the developers uh, but and and that's great at the application level and deploying it and scaling it load balancing it all that kind of great stuff securing it problem is you know they're forgetting something something kind of important and that's the data that those applications use and so uh, i talked to a lot of guys in the devops world you know who are really focused on that and you know they'll they'll they don't even really think about protecting that data uh and they what I'm finding is that these people are not really focused on the long term life cycle of that data. Uh, they're focused on the applications and you know, customer, serving customers, making money, and that's great. Uh, but they're rushing there. And what you find is if, they, if they're the ones who are going to drive the bus as fast as possible to the cloud, when when you get to the journey, you're going to find that you left some of the kids home because it's it, it, there's a big piece missing about you know protecting the data, making sure it's compliant, making sure it's secure. Uh, you know, long-term archiving. You know, from a regulatory perspective, you know, financial regulations, all that kind of stuff. That still has to happen, and uh, they're not really thinking about it. At least not the people I'm talking to, right? So, you know, in DevOps, we talk about, you know, how apps are, you know, pets versus cattle, right? And where, you know, it, you take care of a pet, in like a VM, and uh, you know, the DevOps, a container is like a cattle. You know, it's like a cow. You, one dies, you shoot it, you put another one in. I think it's pretty crude. And people usually get pretty upset when I talk about it. But um, when you're talking about data, data is not doesn't fall into that pets versus cattle paradigm. Data is your firstborn child. Uh, through its entire life cycle, anything happens to that data, you're gonna get really upset. Um and, and companies don't pay ten million dollar ransom to, you know, bring a pet back, right? But you know, it, it is really really a child. And so you you have to treat it as such. And I don't see a lot of that discussion. In the DevOps world, they don't—they're not talking about the data part of it. They're really only talking about the delivery of apps, and I think—I think there has to be more focus on that. Uh, certainly, NetApp comes to the table with a lot of tool sets, especially with an on and replication and snapshots and, and all that kind of stuff to protect the data at, at, from a restore point perspective. But you still have to get that data, you know, onto a different control plane. All the best practices required to get that data uh, protected from, you know, all the nasty things that are going on, and you know, we're getting more every day it seems. So, uh, so I would, I'm just I, I try to get my customers focused on that as well, uh, but then create a platform for them to a data platform really to uh, be able to move to the cloud while having all the traditional functionality from a data protection perspective that they don't have to think about. And eventually, what we're going to have to come up with is a way to fit into the whole, uh, you know, YAML delivered. Sp- Data protection services is really what we're going to have to do. Um, and obviously we can do that with Trident, right? Trident's part of that, right? We can deliver snapshots and things like that through um, through Kubernetes to Trident um, uh, plugin. But we, we need even more than that from like all the other providers that, that are going to get that data off box in, in other places and, and perform the value-added services to that data. Uh, and we don't want to have the app guys thinking about it. That's kind of the point. They don't want to think about this. We shouldn't have to make them think about this. It should be part of it when they, you know, when they claim when they when they create a claim for some storage and pull it, pull, it, pull it from a service, they should throw a tag on what kind of data it is. Is it financial? Is it you know whatever? And based on the tags they put on that data, data protection policy policy should be just laid down and, and executed. This can happen. This, the the I think the plumbing's already all there. I don't see on the data protection side the maturity of the product lines to do that. I think NetApp with Trident is probably further along than everybody else. Um, now we just got to get it off box. I think that's the next trick.
0: You're making Rippy proud. He's yeah, over here I'm smiling. smiling. I'm smiling. He's like, wow, I, I, I'm not a screw-up.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I, well, I love Trident, so, you know, I love NetApp. Yeah. So, yeah. I love NetApp. Yeah. Oh, okay, NetApp.
0: <laughs> so, uh, Glenn, what about Sticker Shock? Are customers seeing a lot of that as they move to the cloud, or are they pretty much you know, resolved to that being kind of a thing?
1: I think what i'm seeing more than sticker shock is just the general cloud shock that they don't understand architecture in the cloud they think they put it in the cloud and it's just going to work and they you know you still really need to understand i would say even more so architecture the limits of what you're going to be getting from your cloud provider whether it's amazon azure or google it's, you know, you get an instance of a different, of a certain type in Amazon, for instance, and what you don't realize is that there are limitations. One of the things in Amazon, for instance, an EC2 instance has a maximum, no matter what the instance type is, um, the maximum throughput to its EBS disks, no matter how many disks you have, is 1.8 gigabytes per second, max, per instance. So if I have a CBO, right, that is running an EC2. So it's back end EBS disks. That's the max I'm going to get, no matter what I do, okay? So that, that creates an architectural, not an issue, but at if you know about it, you can architect it correctly, right? And then, of course, you have the, the different instance types, and while you have a 10 gig connection from your CBO instance to your VPC, it may not be the 10 gig you think it is, based on there's a baseline, there's a burst, unless you're buying you know, enhanced networking and things like that, so you need to be very aware of the architecture of the cloud provider that you're working in. Uh, and not just from a CVO perspective, but all the instances that are going to use it, right? So you can easily create you know, big time bottlenecks um, you know, and constraints of performance that in, you shouldn't have to iterate through all that. I and mean, that's why you need a good partner who understands uh, all the infrastructure of uh, the cloud partner that you're gonna use. But um, there's a lot of gotchas. And so people are running into that. That's the shock, more than the cost, right? The cost is, you know, I think everyone's kind of realized that cloud is not going to be the cheaper option. Uh, it is there for a different reason. And uh, if you like I said, if you're doing the lift and shift, the classic lift and shift, where you're going and you're just going to move all everything from your data center in the cloud, we're seeing a lot less of that because people have made that mistake now many times. Um, but there, you know, companies are starting to use it a lot more intelligently, refactoring somewhat you know using it intelligently maybe you know getting the data up there but spinning up their analytics workloads against that data I've got HPC customers and you know I got pharma um, we have some financial folks that are doing that but um, we, are, we are seeing some sticker shock but it's it's, it's, a, it's a more manageable than it used to be in the beginning it was a mess I mean we had companies that were literally going through their entire year's cloud budget in their first month um, so that, that has stopped.
0: That's good is that that's that's annoying <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you mentioned earlier about um you know backup and data protection and, and disaster recovery what are the approaches you're taking to disaster recovery and data protection in a DevOps environment
1: well if you worry about the data itself it actually the, the, the practice is very similar to what it is in a non DevOps environment right because what we're it, once you've once you successfully disaggregated the application layers from the storage layer right from where the data is sitting. Then I mean, NetApp folks have known how to protect data from a storage layer forever, right? This is what we've been doing for years. So that same exact methodology applies perfectly in a DevOps world where you don't have to protect the application layer because if something goes bad there, it's just gonna rebuild, right? You're not, you're not gonna, you don't back up Docker containers themselves uh, or you know, any kind of, you don't back it up. You don't need to because it's just gonna get rebuilt, right? You spin up another one or another three or 10 or whatever. The data on the back end, however, can be backed up a different way, right? It can be backed up through um, either snapshots and vaulting, um, through uh, off-box mounting. If you, that, so we try, and, and there's lots of different opinions on how you how you use a NetApp in a DevOps environment with containers and, and things like that, because um, you know everyone's got a different religion on the protocol they use. Uh, I try to use NFS wherever I can, only because it's easier to back up, ooh, I
2: think. I know, again,
1: <laughs> you'd like that, Justin. He's gotta so, say that. <laughs> yeah, but you know, some but some things require you know raw Luns, right? Some some types of containers require uh, you know raw space. So how do you you know how do you get those things out and protected? And so you have to you have to manage that. Some you know, NetApp isn't always the entire answer. In fact, you should never I never view NetApp as the hundred percent answer. It is the home of the data. NetApp is providing the data services to the containers. It's providing immediate restore points, the quickest way to get back from a a malware event, right, or some sort of other logical data. At, you know, failure, which is gonna be 99 point, if you count those two, it's gonna be 99.99% of the problems, right? when it comes to disaster recovery, right? If, if you're building a cloud native type of application, you should be in multiple regions already. So disaster recovery, you kind of already work in that way. But if, uh, from a classic DR perspective, we can still use all the tools we used before with Snap Mirror and all that kind of wonderful stuff. But, uh, and that's, that's known, that's a known quantity. So that, that's the good news about using NetApp. Now, if you were just using, you know, straight up disk or doing it with some other technology, I'm not quite sure it'd be as easy because the, the frameworks aren't there and the experience isn't there.
0: Speaking of experience and frameworks. Yeah. So, so Rippy, um, how are you approaching that challenge from the Trident perspective as a developer?
2: Um, <clears throat> as a developer. Okay. Okay. Um, well, I mean, what, I mean we, or as as a walrus, if you like, yes, if yes, you prefer, yes. I don't. <laughs> yes, your choice. Uh, <laughs> walrus is hard. I, bad mental model. As I, a dolphin, Yeah, as a dolphin. Yes, <laughs> as a mammal, I'm a mammal. Okay. Um, yeah. So you know, just to reiterate what he was saying, the uh, you know, you've got your you've got your database container. Um, like, if you, say you're running Postgres. Uh, it, it it doesn't matter which node it's running on. Probably, hopefully, um, you, all of your hosts. Um, are probably pretty pretty uh uniform. So you can just stop that container on one node and start it on another, like if you're doing upgrades or uh you in new new nodes and so, you know, if you did bring in a new beefier node and you wanted to run on that, you could you could use like if you're using Kubernetes, you could use uh selectors to target that newer node. But but again, it's the data that's the important part. The container is pretty standard. Everyone, you know, most people are running a pretty standardized version of MySQL or Postgres or whatever database you're using. Um and that's where you know, Trident. Chardis's job um, is to be, you know, it's your dynamic storage provisioner. So, in Docker or in Kubernetes land, um, you configure it with a with a with a config file, and you tell it, w- you know, which of our storage systems you're using, um, and then you get the attributes of that storage platform. So, if you've targeted it at an OnTap system, then you'll get, uh, you know, your, your snapshots and cloning and SnapMirror, and snap, all the all the all the things that we're been on the podcast before, and his, he was just describing. So, um, I think Trident's an enabler. It helps you um, use the storage that you've bought already, and it uses the features that you've that you've enabled in a in the in the ecosystem in an ecosystem friendly manner too. So, as the ecosystem evolves, you know we, we we're adding in the new features that they add too, like snapshots. And we, in some cases, we were there first, and then the standard came after us. So we you know we we uh, I think we're thought leaders in that in that regard too. Um, so it's a really exciting space to be in. Man. It's an, an excellent cool.
0: answer for a walrus. Thanks, thanks. I mean, I'm impressed. Yeah, the, <laughs>
2: the, Google teeth, Google the Google tusks Google. are getting in the way a little bit. but
0: <laughs> yeah. We have the smartest walruses here at NetApp.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so when, in the, when I go back to my comment before about serverless um, and how we're going to use that in a data fabric way, right? So if I got a lot of data on my on-prem and I go snap mirror that up to CBO and I want to start doing serverless apps, which a lot of companies want to do, um, I actually had the client start talking to me about that, so I kind of spun up my CBO and did the whole thing and a couple of after a couple of tries and trying to import certain Python libraries and it's, you know, Amazon saying, you know, Lambda's telling me, you can't do that. Um, I realized that I was going to have to come up with an infrastructure, right? So now uh, what we've done is we've taken Minio, uh, which is a very lightweight, tight code, open-source Kind of, it's an object server, but it, it has a mode that is kind of backwards. You know how uh, we have a NAS gateway in a storage grid world that can, you know, uh, take a, a storage grid object store and and present NAS to like we present, uh, present NFS or SMB to the world, so you can use object. Well, Minio has it has a reverse version of that, but they call their NAS gateway that can mount an NFS or SMB mount point and present it as an S3 object so that you can now hit it with a REST API and do all those cool object things, even doing event notification on NFS volumes, but presenting through, you know, a REST, you know, HTTPS REST uh, REST calls. So now I have the ability uh, to spin up a bunch of these Minio containers. Basically, been, I put up a bunch of, you know, EC2 instances, but this could have been done in ECS or whatever, uh, and, you know load balance them i put an nginx you know front end to it i didn't you know this wasn't kubernetes i just did it kind of raw and uh from there i was able to now make calls from my serverless to the cbo the snap mirror replica i didn't have to clone it right i there, there were some tricks with minio that i had to discover which i'll keep my own for now <laughs> that uh to, to mount the read only and expose that to this to this interface but Uh, What we're seeing is if, you know, those kind of apps that where you're using the copy from the data fabric, SnapMirror, you know, replica, uh, they're really more the analytic play. I have that data up there and I want to do stuff to it in the cloud. I want to check it out. I want to, you know, maybe like compliance check it. I know you have a compliance checker, but things like that. But I want to do it in my serverless. I don't want to have to have, um, you know, containers spun up or or even EC2 instances there to manage all that stuff because that becomes a pet type of thing. I would rather have my serverless code there ready to go, just, you know, nice and easy Python code and do, do my analysis on whatever is up there uh, and, and do it when it changes. So it's almost like an automatic snap mirror transfer completion notification as soon as it sees the change. Uh, and, it, and it works great. And, and you can spin up as many uh, of those Minio containers as you want. But what, how is the Minio container mounting the existing NFS volumes? Try it in. Right? So, that, so without trident, it would be a lot harder for me to do this all automatically, right and and be able to scale it based on how much performance I need from my uh, you know how many how many objects am I calling in a, in a second or something like that. I can have my menu objects spin up and down with my serverless app. So this is not, this, when I'm not doing anything, there's nothing running. There's no menu, there's no nginx, there's no serverless. It, when When I need it, it just spins up automatically when it senses something new. So it's really cool.
2: Yeah, sounds really cool. I've I've uh, dabbled with Minio myself, uh f- you know, um, just for fun projects uh, on the side. It's it's really cool. Uh it's uh it's impressive.
1: Yeah. Yeah, what they've done with a lot with a very small code. So Yeah,
2: uh, it's a Go too, I think. Uh, Go code base. Mm-hmm, yep. Yeah. I'm always fan I'm a huge fan of Go, so <laughs> No. Yeah. Imagine that. Imagine that. Hmm. Yeah.
0: Cool. So um we are also huge fans of Go's as as evidenced yeah. by our Or stickers, yeah. Um, So you know, you mentioned it's funny. You're uh, you're a field CTO, and I believe that officially in the job description, you have to know a lot of buzzwords. Um, So I'm hearing serverless and DevOps, and I I know I know roughly what those things mean. But for people who aren't you know regulars of this environment, what's serverless and what's DevOps? What do those things mean?
1: Well, I'll take serverless. Uh, DevOps means so many things to so many different people. It's almost impossible to define anymore. (laughs) But, uh, you know, from a serverless perspective, if, if you're taking, there's actually two ways to look at serverless when, that I like to talk about with customers. One is the technical version of it, right? Where you are, uh, instead of having an instance where the, your unit of measure is the operating system and you're putting applications on an operating system and, phys- and, and virtual machine that has its own CPU and memory and you've got to manage that whole thing as a machine, um, in the cloud, it would be really good if you could turn those on, turn those off, scale them. Uh, to, to maximize your your economy on that then you go down you know further down into containers which obviously have a shared kernel and those containers are basically abstractions of that kernel and, and all the, the file namespaces in there that you can do what you want to do in there and um, and the idea is that with containers you're not going to you know leave them running long term they're, 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 they could be long-term containers but when they are shut off when you're them back on you're you're rebuilding them you're not you know, you're not gonna save them and back them up and patch them and do that kind of stuff. But serverless get, takes it to the next level where um, you're, you're really, you're writing some functions, um, clearly defined function sets. And those are only being executed when you, uh, when you need them. And so it could be a, a Python script, it could be Go, it could be you know Node.js, so all that kind of great stuff. And what ends up happening is you never have to worry about the scaling of it. You never have to worry about the uh, backing up of the the application. There's no server. You don't even have access to the container. You literally just say, I have some code to run, and I'm going to pay for the CPU and memory it takes to run that while I'm running it, and when I'm not, I'm not going to pay a thing. Uh, And and it becomes much more, it's it's exactly efficient for the code that you write. Now, that's a technical version of it. When we talk about the financial version, and I talk about, talk to guys who are not in IT, I'm talking CFO type of guys or business guys, uh, it, it's what serverless kind of becomes is the, um, the end game of the micro economization of IT, right? So you, we, we're just, we're, we're using these right now, like when you're on prem, you, you started with mainframes and physical servers, right? So you had you know the physical server and all the stuff in it, and then the operating system, and then all the apps and all that kind of stuff. And then we got rid of the physical server. Now we're just dealing with a virtual machine. Further micro, now we can have multiple virtual, virtual machines in a physical server, great. We'd now be able to further microeconomize that by, I can now cost out these virtual machines based on the projects or departments. Further down, you're going down containers. Now, even each virtual machine can have multiple containers doing different things, and I can spread my applications across multiple virtual machines. Now, you know further micro-economizing you know, how I can deal with IT. Now, when you get to serverless, it's kind of, I'm not sure how much further you can get. Right, because now I'm literally taking my code and I'm running it, and it's only costing me. My cost factor is what it's going to cost me in the actual CPU and memory I'm going to use to run that code. So, behind that, it's running in a container, which is running in a VM, which is running on a physical machine. Right, I doubt it's running on a mainframe, but it could. Right, and it's an IBM, right? Um, but from a economization perspective, that's really where it's been going. And so, when the epitome of the cloud native efforts it's going to be this microeconomization that is the driver it's not it's yes it's important that we are able to write scalable code that can just kind of self-heal and do all that kind of great stuff but at the end of the day people want to make money people want to know what their costs are they want to minimize those costs uh, and they don't want to have to do a lot of the background work to to make that happen um serverless especially when when, when in the context of uh, aws google and azure that that's really the epitome of the microeconomization of, of uh, of IT, and you can't really get there, to segue into DevOps. You can't really get to that world, without a DevOps culture because, with the whole idea of serverless, where you have code it doing lots of different things, and if you've ever seen how serverless is set up, it's, it there's lot, there lots of different functions that you can call that, that create a quote unquote application. Um, the microservices culture. Is what you need to get that going. I mean, uh, now not every project requires microservices, but that particular kind lends itself well to it because you, you need to have discrete sets of tools that everyone's using in, inside that group, and then everything is exposed as a service to the other parts of the software. So um, that that's where I see you know DevOps and this whole. Like I said, the microeconomization is really the key to the I think the whole thing from a financial perspective, um, but that's my that's my spiel
0: so walrus yes what's what's DevOps?
2: well, serverless for just one second. I was just going to say you know every adding on to what you said, um, sometimes a like concrete example at least for me uh, you know helps things resonate better with me so um, like one example would be imagine that you wanted to um you you had a service uh, you you wanted to be able to take an image and you just wanted to put a watermark on it, right? Um, in the old days, you might have to you you might bring up a whole VM for that. But you know, again, in the serverless world, you could just have this watermarking service. It just sits there. Um, it's not when not being used. You're not you know you're not being billed for it. But it takes as an input an image and it gives as an output an image, right? So in the serverless world, you just have this little function. It Takes an input as an image, returns an image, and now you've got a watermark. So. That's kind of the vision of uh, at least you know to me. That's how serv- you know, a serverless uh, world is: lots of those little microservices being stitched together. Maybe one for authentication, maybe one for billing. You know, yeah. you can also envision a world where you have it may be different providers even implementing these. You know, like different marketplaces. Like so, you, you know, this other person is really good at billing, so you you, you use their uh, serverless framework for billing and so they're personally yep. good at image processing so yeah
1: and, and and we see api services already on the web that are like you get these websites like rapid api and all that kind of stuff so you th- these things are that that's almost like serverless right you're just calling an api getting you're sending it some query and you're getting some data back right that's essentially what serverless is but perhaps it's not you going to a website and, and asking a question and getting an answer back perhaps it's some event that triggers that that function to go do something for instance like you know snap mirrors Completed to my CBO, I've got new data to process. This thing can go up there and put my watermarks on all my data, right, across the board. Um, And all of a sudden, that little function's not so little anymore. Um, Or you know, get you know a function that tells another function, you know, what's the you know the ETA for these for my entire supply chain? Go figure out, you know, I just got this order. Go figure out the ETA based on all the background parts because I use a just-in-time manufacturing model, right? And so, this is all today done in these big monolithic applications right if we think about sap right that's how, that's what's doing that today so in the future that you know could be done in a it's not easy but it can be done in a serverless way not saying it should be even but I um, people are going to try to do this I know customers that are moving there with some of their billing apps with some of um, some of uh, their some critical infrastructure stuff even I'd say uh, so you your, your lives will be touched by this and you'll never even know it of course but Uh, It's it's happening. And so they're struggling, though, because the the application side of this is moving really, really fast. And the capabilities are fantastic. Uh, The development frameworks are great, but they forgot about the data. They really did. Um, You know, serverless and data, the the data hasn't caught up. I don't think that the technologies for managing data in this environment have have been uh, as uh, accelerating as fast as this other side. And and that's going to have to change.
2: Um, I would also say um, you know, uh, Nordstrom has put out some really good um, uh, blog posts on how they've uh, their journey for serverless. So if you're looking for you know more real, real world examples, they definitely go read what, about what they've been doing and how they've been. The so department them. store, right? The department store, yeah. yeah. They've got some really good blog posts. Excellent. Check that out.
0: Yeah. Cool. All right, so uh, Rippy, yeah. you work on Trident. Yeah. Um, my understanding is we have some new Trident. Releases.
2: Um yeah. So I think so last time we talked, uh I think it was the it was a, uh, was it the one hundredth episode? I might have been, yeah. Yeah. Wow, it's been a while. It's been a while, yeah. So it was right that was uh like last August maybe. It was before we had our um nineteen ten release and we just had our twenty oh one release. So if people aren't familiar with our release model, our release cadence, um, you know, we have uh, every four months, so 01, 04, 07, uh, and 10, uh, we have four releases a year. We try to line them up around, relatively around when the Kubernetes is also having releases. Um, and you know, each 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 new release adds new features. Um, part of it's, you know, we we will um, add support for the you know the a newer version of Kubernetes. We'll also add other you know other features that we may have been working on along the way. Um, you know, all of these are. course on the pub and uh, we have good blog posts about this but um so for for 1910 uh, one of the features we added was uh, a sand economy driver Uh, if you're familiar may not be familiar with our NAS economy driver but it's 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 bringing that a parody of that to the sand world so previously our original sand implementation was a one-to-one volume to LUN so if you were to use the just our on-tap sand driver and you were asked you asked uh, Docker or Kubernetes to create you a volume um, um, A volume from their perspective what they would do is they would go off and create a LUN a single LUN that lived in a volume and that was what you got so um, our NAS economy driver um, what it does is it creates a Qtree um, it uses one volume and creates a whole bunch of Qtrees so our SAN economy driver d- does something similar where it creates one volume and creates a bunch of LUNs in one volume so why did we originally do it the other way? It was f- for some of our storage management capability functions, like sna- uh, snap, snapshots, clones, Snap Vault, you know. Um, those things are easier done on a one-to-one level. Um, but so yeah, that's Stan Economy Driver. You can go read about our blog post to get more information about that. But that's one of the new features we added with uh, in the 1910 release. We also added support for um, Kubernetes, added support for resizing, um, iSCSI persistent volumes. So we added support to chart it for that. Uh, we also added support for um for our cloud volumes with um G C P the Google Cloud platform. And then our uh most recent one, right after the break, our twenty oh one release, we added um two of our big features we added were um IPv six support, um single stack for on tap. I say single stack because Kubernetes has uh, two different modes of operation. It can have single-stack or dual-stack. Um, with Single-stack, all you have is IPv6 in your setup. With dual-stack, you have mixed IPv4 and IPv6 setup. Uh, this initial release of IPv6 for Trident is uh, IPv6 single-stack only. The reason is the uh, dual-stack support you was know, alpha. So we're trying to wait till that gets a little more <laughs> solid. Um, but yeah, we added that support for ONTAP, and it should work with all the drivers, the ONTAP drivers. So um, the NAS. Mass economy, sand, uh, sand economy, uh, Flexvol, uh, sorry, Flex Group, and another feature we added was uh, support for Prometheus metrics uh, endpoint monitoring. So we have an endpoint you can plug into Pr- Prometheus, and you can start getting metrics from uh, Trident. Now it's not like a replacement for you know, our bigger <laughs> products around that do that sort of analysis uh, in your environment, but it it will give you information about like um, how many volumes Trident's currently um, um, has provisioned, how many it's created, how many's it's deleted. It's it's it's, it's a Trident focused view of what it's been doing. It will also give you metrics about um, how long some of the um, these like the on tap um, API operations have been taking to, to be performed that it's doing. Not not it's, it's not meant to be a whole holistic environment. It's just Trident's view of things. Um, adding that code was was pretty fun. Um, and it's done pretty in a way where it's pretty easy to add new metrics. So please, if um, people are using this and, and, you, and there's new things you want, please uh, you know reach out to us on the pub or uh, file um, file uh, issues on GitHub for us so we can add more features. Both IPv6 and um, the Prometheus metrics were uh, customer asks. So um, yeah, it's always good to be able to help customers with their needs. I think Glenn would agree with that. Yeah, I don't. Oh. I don't agree with that at all. <laughs> hmm.
0: Yeah, and the walrus. Yeah, the wa- um, <laughs> <laughs> cuckoo, <Coo-coo-ca-choo>. cuckoo, <Coo-coo-ca-choo. laughs> All
2: right, anything else, uh, Rippy? Um, for, those are the main uh, big Trident features. Um, again, we'll have another. You know, every three months, uh, or yeah, supposed to be a four year. If so another one in 2004. Um, so just look. We don't. We can't preannounce what we're going to have there, but you know. No. Yeah. No, so just you
0: don't want you don't want to disappoint people. I don't want to disappoint when people. when you fail to deliver. <laughs>
2: Thanks. Thanks for the comment. No problem. No yeah. problem.
0: Yeah. Uh, Glenn, uh, anything else you want to add?
1: Well, I think we covered a lot of it. Um, you know, I'm looking forward to the next Trident release and then uh, I'm not sure it's, I was, I was actually very surprised how easy it was to get it going with the, uh, with the serverless framework I was working with. So, um, so kudos to those guys. It, it was, it was rather easy.
0: Yeah. It's weird. I mean, you, you, you like meet these guys and you're like, man, once I start using their stuff, how easy is, could it possibly
2: be? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, love to, I'd love to hear the customer success stories yes there you go <laughs> yeah I'm glad it was easy for you to use yeah excellent
0: alright so um, again if we wanted to reach you uh, Jonathan how do we do that
2: um, yeah uh, on Twitter I'm at JKRippy or I'm also on the pub which is our Slack our channel Slack, Slack community and Glenn uh, you can reach me at
0: Decazer on Twitter excellent alright thanks for joining us all right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netapp.com or send us a tweet at NetApp. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or via techontappodcast.com. If you like the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team, I'd like to thank Jonathan Rippy and Glenn Decazer for joining us today. As always, thanks for listening.